Today's guests achieved similar historic firsts. Both became the first female president of their respective universities. Their experiences leading up to and during their presidencies forged a lot of nerve, along with grit and grace, traits which served their leadership and their incredibly close friendship very well. They share those traits in this episode. Studying the most critical leadership traits is a core component of courses with the Innovative Leadership Institute. We can help you identify and grow them in yourself. After the podcast, find out more at InnovativeLeadership.com. This is Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute, where we help leaders be future ready. We're recording this interview at the 2023 International Leadership Association Global Conference in Vancouver, celebrating its 25th anniversary. Today, we're talking to Martha Piper and Indira Samara Sekera. Martha served as the first woman president of the University of British Columbia, and Indira served as the first woman president of the University of Alberta. Martha and Indira are authors of the book Nerve, Lessons in Leadership from Two Women Who Went First, which we'll be discussing with them today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's lovely to be here. The title of your book is called Nerve. Why nerve? I am crazy, almost to the point of addiction, about Georgia O'Keeffe. She lived in the 20th century and was quite remarkable as being one of the first women to be a remarkable artist. She decided she was going to paint the way she wanted to paint. She wasn't going to go to Europe and study with the European masters. She went off to New Mexico and painted flowers and skulls and all sorts of Southwest landscapes. She has a quote that I have over my desk that is this, it takes more than talent. It takes a kind of nerve, kind of nerve, and a lot of hard, hard work. Now, I love that quote because it tells me you don't have to be particularly talented. And as women, we work hard. We know how to work hard. But what we often lack is nerve. Nerve to say it like we want to. Nerve to be ourselves. Nerve to be unliked. Nerve to make tough decisions. Nerve to go first. Nerve to do things our way. And so when Indira and I were thinking about it, we said, you know, we think maybe that's the essence of the book, to encourage and inspire women and men to step up and have the nerve to answer the call and to take the right steps to lead. And that's essentially how we got the title. Thank you. My mom is an artist or was an artist, and we went to the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum doing that with her and appreciating her art was unique. Oh, yeah. Yes. Pretty progressive. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you go to Santa Fe or Herham and Abiquiu or any of those places, you'll recognize how almost outrageous, audacious she was with her art at the time. It's still outrageous for some people. Yes. <laughs> what a great platform to launch the conversation Marthy, help our listeners understand when you did something that took nerve to do it, was authentic, and didn't necessarily go as you had hoped, and then the nerve to keep going. Because we often take a step, but then when we're hit with that complete disapproval, we kind of whimper and cower. You may have felt whimpering and cowering, but you proceeded. You know, the story is quite simply that I decided for my installation at a pretty world-renowned university 
that I was going to have a theme, which was think about UBC. Think about your role. Think about what students can do. Think about the future. Think about its history. Think about its potential. And as part of that, I thought, what a great idea. I'm going to develop thinking caps that are going to say, think about it on the front and then UBC on the back. It was just a wonderful idea. Just wonderful. And I went to my protocol officer and said, this is what I want. I want everybody to have a thinking cap. And he said, he was a very gracious man. He said something like, are you sure? I didn't take the cues. Yes. What I failed to recognize is that the installation at a university is a very traditional, pompous, sage kind of ceremony. And so when I took my mortarboard off and put my baseball cap on and encouraged everybody to put their baseball caps on, I thought it was wonderful. I go out onto the avenue and realize that it was very, very poorly received. My whole entree into the university was seen as totally inappropriate and that I was a lightweight and I was just a cheerleader. And what do you expect with a woman? And it was tough. I'm not going to tell you it wasn't tough. And then I faced an APEC conference and it was tough. I was basically being asked to resign. What do you do in those circumstances? Well, I go back to this little calligraphy that I have over my desk that says, just be Martha. Don't try to be somebody you aren't. Be true to yourself. You have support structures. I had my family and my husband who supported me unconditionally. But when it all is said and done, you have to be comfortable in your own skin. And if you feel what you have done is the right thing for you, that's what sustains you every day when you get up. You have to try to block out some of the criticism and realize that not everyone's going to be happy with you and not try to be liked all the time, but to try to be true to yourself and your principles. It's all about principles. If you start veering away, that's when you get into trouble. You talked about the APEC conference. Yeah. Your decision to go forward was based on principles. Yeah. So can you share what the underpinning principles were and how they helped you get out of that? It's interesting you ask that. This was being done by the government of Canada. We were just a venue. And so all these leaders, the Asia-Pacific Economic Conference, these questionable leaders at the time, Zhang Zemin and Suharto from Indonesia, People who had defied human rights were coming onto the campus. Students were very upset, did not feel they should be there. And so there was a lot of protests. What were the principles? The principles were allowing students the right to express themselves, to speak out, academic freedom. So when that was being challenged by the government, by essentially where they were going to put the barriers for the sight lines for students to be seen and heard, I realized that my principle was... Whatever I did, I had to support the principle of a student being able to speak out and express their discontent, even if I might not have agreed with it. And because of that principle, it gave me the nerve to actually write the prime minister's office and demand that the sight lines be changed. Had I not done that, had I backed away, I knew no one in the prime minister's office. I just was going out on a limb. But had I not stood up for the principle of student freedom and academic freedom, I would have been done because that letter that actually took on the prime minister's office saved me when there was a commission to look at the issue after the fact. It was both nerve and principle. Yeah, but the principle gives you the nerve. The principle gives you the nerve. If you don't have the principle, 
then it's very hard to find the nerve. And Dira, I want to jump to you. When was a time that you relied on your principles to make tough decisions where going along may have been a little easier? One that comes to mind is the case of an honorary degree to a recipient. This was a case where the university has a process to select an honorary recipient. It was a very distinguished individual. He had happened to be the CEO of Nestle, Peter Brebeck, and he was in his subsequent role as the head of the Global Water Council for the World Economic Forum. He had been engaged with the university on helping us think about water, its importance to the world, and so on and so forth. Anyway, committee decides to give him an honorary degree, and we have a process. When it's announced... The academics decide they don't want this man on campus because of Nestle. Nestle was accused of dissuading women from breastfeeding. It was accused of all kinds of things. The principle for me was that, first of all, we were honoring the man. He was being honored for work that he had genuinely done that had advanced cause of the world. We were an institution that was committed to a process of honoring people through a collective expression of what we had decided was a valuable contribution. Just because a few academics decided they didn't like it, or a few students decided they didn't like it, it was inappropriate for me to reverse that honorary degree decision. And I took a lot of heat on it because the media immediately decided they smelled blood. So it was all over the media, then the people, nonprofit organizations who don't like the corporate sector were into it, the government was getting a bit uneasy. The Board of Governors was not sure whether this was going to hurt the reputation of the university. And Mr. Brebeck himself, Peter, to his credit, sent me a note and said, you know, Indira, this is getting too controversial. Why don't I just not come? And I said, no, Peter. We made the decision to honor you. We are going to stick by it. So again, when it gets hot in the kitchen, you don't stop cooking. You have to continue to say, we made a decision. We had done all of our homework to decide this man was being honored. It wasn't my decision alone. Obviously, it was a decision mostly of the business school. It's a question of saying, what does a university stand for? And it troubles me today that a lot of universities recoil at the moment there's a protest and someone doesn't like a speaker, whether they're extreme left or extreme right or some topic, everybody just disappears and reverses course. You have to have the nerve to say, what does the institution stand for? If we are an institution that entertains all kinds of thinking and diversity of thought, then we better stick to it. And that was my example. And it was it was hard in the kitchen. It sounds like in either case, you would have risked your tenure. Yeah. In my particular case in APEC, there were calls to resign almost immediately because what happened was when the leaders left the campus, they met on campus, but when they left, there were huge protests. And the protesters went and stopped the traffic, the blocking of the leaders exiting campus. And so the RCMP came out and pepper sprayed the students to get them out of the way, to get these leaders out. There was only one way out to the airport. No student was injured. No student was hurt or killed or anything, but it was a very difficult time. I was being held responsible for this event as if I had caused it. And of course, it's not so much me, but the university, and I represent the university. And so there were huge protests asking me, not asking me, demanding that I be terminated and that I resign. 
And there was a huge commission struck to look at it all. And it was a big news in Canada. And so, yes, you know, you take consequences of your actions and you acknowledge if you're wrong. If you're wrong, you do acknowledge that. But if you think you're principled and you think that you have something to defend, you have to stand up for it. In a time that is so informed by fundamentalism and polarization, this seems a really important message that often folks are backing down. They are deferring to the mob or the popular opinion. And I have to believe many of them don't support that opinion, but they've been bullied or intimidated into acquiescing to those opinions. That the two of you happen to be sitting here as women, because we often attribute that courage to men, mm -hmm. not women. And yet both of you have made principled decisions, stuck with those, used nerve, and I'll invoke two other words you used in your book, grace and grit. It's all about grit and grace, I think. We began to look at that. How did you build that grit, both of you? Because you've both demonstrated it over and over again. Well, I think it's through experience, and I'll tell you two quick stories, because I think you have to have had what I call challenging experiences, where you develop grit, and that allows you to take the next one on. My one was when I was doing my PhD on steel processing, of all things, my supervisor said to me, well, your models are all very nice, but I want you to prove that what you're predicting is true. So could you please go to this steel plant and make measurements on an operating continuous casting machine? And I thought, oh my goodness, right? So I went to the steel plant, no ladies' washrooms, all male workforce. You know, you have those pulpits where you have very obscene photographs of women. You know, that was the old culture. And then I was doing my experiment overnight and I had to go and get a few hours of sleep. I came back, my entire equipment had been removed and shoved into a closet and I had to go hunting for it. I could have quit and gone home. I wouldn't have got my PhD. But I found the grit to speak to the operators, appeal to them to get my equipment back. So I developed that I can do it under the most hostile circumstances. So when I experienced it as a university president, in a very quick story, I went to India with the intention of elevating University of Alberta's profile in India. And so I went to the most prestigious university, one of the IITs. Now, they only talked to MIT and Harvard and Cambridge and so on. And who are we, right? And I remember the guy who received us wouldn't allow us to see the president, didn't think I was worthy of that, and had this meeting and left us with a bunch of underlings while he was running in and out with his phone, basically telling me, yeah, whatever. At the end of the hour, he said, oh, I'm really busy. There was really no engagement with these professors. And I said, oh, by the way, here's some of the reasons. If we work together as Canada and India, as IIT and U of A, we can talk about energy transition, energy security, and I can find resources. Oh, really? Oh, by the way, I think our president may have 10 minutes to speak to you. That was grit and grace. I could have walked out of the meeting really annoyed with him and taken the slap in my face and just lost the opportunity. I stuck with it. And we became great friends later on, and we laughed at this story when I used to say, my goodness, I thought you were just awful. But it's about finding the nerve, the inner resources to say, I came to do a job. He has disrespected the institution I represent. I'm not going to allow him to get away with it.
my first leadership role was in a steel company. We were implementing an ERP yes. and I was doing leadership stuff. So I walk in and I say, you know, I think you have a leadership problem. Yes. He's 6'6", six, six, and I'm 5'3", and he looks like he weighs 600 pounds. Yeah. He looked like he should be running a steel plant. And he slams the door, and he says, tell me who it is, and I'll kick their asses. And I'm thinking, I can't jump out the window because yes. I'll get injured. Yeah. He's standing by the door. I'm, you know, this new leadership consultant person. How do I get out of here and not die? Yes. It just invoked every bit of survival mechanisms. That's but good. I don't remember what I said, but I did manage to exit the room. But it was an environment that was not at all open and welcoming, <laughs> especially to women. No. Yeah, I didn't use the men's restroom, but I wasn't going to not do so. Yeah. I went to the men's restroom. Oh, you did? I did because I had no choice. Interesting. And, and how did they respond? Well, I can't remember. I just went. <laughs> <laughs> I had to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And that's grit. Well, <laughs> and they'd come in, and then they'd realize that there was some a woman was there in one of the stalls, and then they'd rush out. <laughs> they'd just probably see by your shoes, right? So I think that's the principle again. I mean, talking, you know, I think it's about taking those difficult situations, not forgetting what your goal was, what your objective was, not taking it personally. Woe is me, you know. I've been insulted, put down, and thinking about what you're here to do. And then do it gracefully. It would be easy to be angry. And I think we've all gone through the, I'm angry, pissed. But invoking the grace, even when the feelings may not have been graceful. How did you do that? You know, I think it comes down to how passionately you care about the job you are doing, the institution you're representing. For me, it wasn't about me. It was about the University of Alberta. I was going to advance it at all costs. In the case of the PhD, I mean, I had a personal interest in getting my degree. I had a goal. You know, when we talk about leadership, which is the place where I had to do this, not once, many times. I had this happen on so many occasions. I'd go somewhere and it'd be kind of discounted or dismissed. I didn't take it personally. I said, I am going to advance this university no matter what it takes. And I'm going to stick with it. And if I walk out the room or I get mad, it would be a lost opportunity. It won't come again. I have this one chance to get this done. And I think you certainly exhibited that. I mean, I was her vice president research. I learned a lot from watching her. And I think you watch other leaders and you draw inspiration from those who demonstrated that grit and grace. I think grace is one of the secret weapons we have. Where it comes from is interesting. But if I look at my own grit, I attribute it a lot to the fact that I grew up in a family of four children, and I was third between two boys. And we were only about one brother is 16 months younger and another one 16 months older. And I'm meshed in this environment where I was just at their mercy. I mean, they controlled me. You do this, you do that, go out and fix the ski jump, go build the building or whatever. And I had to stand up for myself. I had to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to swim out there and put my life in danger to soap up your ski jump for you. And so part of it was how I was raised. But I tend to agree that you build up the capacity mm -hmm. through difficult issues to realize that the sky isn't falling. It may look like it's falling. It may appear and you're frightened. But because you've survived other efforts 
And my story is uh, when I was in Montreal, I was a physical therapist. And in order to work in Montreal, you had to speak both languages. And I did not. I had come from the United States. I had taken 10 years of Spanish. I couldn't say a word of French. And I had to learn French, or at least attempt to learn French, in order to work, to get a license. And I then had to go out and work at this hospital for children. It was a French hospital. It was the only job I could get. And I don't know if you know Montreal, but there are English sections of the city and French sections of the city. I would get on the bus in the English section and ride it, and I'd be fine for the first mile, mile and a half, where everyone on the bus was speaking English. But as the bus traversed through the city, it went into the French section, to the hospital I was working at. And all the English would have exited, and the only language being spoken on the bus by the time I got to the hospital was French. I didn't understand at least two-thirds of it. Then I had to go and treat patients in French and talk to doctors. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to do, ever. I wanted to quit. It would have been easy for me to say, I'm out of here. To this day, I'm not sure why I prevailed. Other than, I guess I was determined. Yeah. I was determined to not fail. And the fault of failure was mine. It wasn't people weren't doing me in. It was my ability to either succeed or fail. And I think so often that's what grit is about. It's about your ability to confront an issue. As far as grace goes, you know, I always say grit is what you do. Grace is how you do it. And my advice would be try to put yourself in your opposition's position. Because if you're doing something gritty, somebody's not going to like it. Try to hear what their concerns are. If you can try to understand why they're not happy and not necessarily change your opinion or change your position, but at least acknowledge that there's another side to this mm -hmm. and be quite generous when you actually announce what you're doing or your decision or actually have to do it. I think it goes a long way. People aren't going to change their opinion, but they will respect you for at least acknowledging that there is another side to the controversy. But I do think women are better. We don't hold a monopoly on grace, but I think it is one of the things we're a little better at than our male counterparts in listening and then being able to explain. And this gets to the principles. You may not agree with me, I don't expect everyone to agree with me, but this is why I've decided what I've decided. Don't keep it in the dark. Be clear. This reason and this reason and this reason is why I have decided to do X. You may not agree, but at least you know where I'm coming from. That's the courage and the nerve to not just go make a decision and hope people forget it, but in the light, transparency. Exactly. Being open and then occasionally acknowledging if you're wrong, somebody says something that really, I hadn't thought of that. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's something to that. Well, and everyone wants to hear that in a way, right? Yeah. I, yeah. Not that you didn't think of it, but I said something that was so valuable. Yes. It made you think. People want to be heard uh -huh. and heard authentically, not just we consulted, check, check, check. No one really heard us. One of the other things you talked about this morning that was so important is building the team. And you both talked about it. And I love the wand story. I'll tell the wand story. I had become vice president research. Martha Piper was president. I didn't know her at all. 
She had been on campus for about two or three years by the time she had decided to find a new VP. And I did not have a long history of academic administration. I had not been a dean. I had been a director. I hadn't been any of that. My first day on the job, I go into the vice president research office. I'm already feeling pretty amazed, right? Like I went from professor yesterday to VP research in 24 hours. Like, whoa, this is pretty nice. And there was an envelope on my desk. President's office was collect. So I opened this envelope. And inside, I was expecting a letter, a typical letter that you'd get, giving me instructions about what my job was all about and what the expectations were, because I knew she knew that I didn't know how to do this job, though she'd appointed me. I opened the envelope, and in it is a Harry Potter wand. Think about it. A Harry Potter wand. I was just like, whoa. And a little handwritten note that she does so well in her beautiful handwriting, Dear Indira. Welcome to the team. Let's make magic, Martha. Unbelievable, right? I never forgot that, right? I can tell it and I, I can see it like it's yesterday. The power of it was, first of all, here was a leader who was doing something completely unconventional. She was going to be a very innovative person to work with. She expected you to really do unusual stuff, magic. And she was building a team. Right? She was creating an environment in which I felt welcome, really powerful. And so I took a page out of her book in team building. And one of the stories that is actually not even in the book, but that I like to tell was that when you're building a team, they need to feel that you have their back, particularly if you're the president. And if you go to a board meeting, you have board members criticizing facilities or the finance department or the admission cycle or whatever. You need to be able to, first of all, defend your people and take the heat because buck stops on your desk, but also let them know that you understand the actions they've taken or where they may have fallen short. So I used to have these sessions that I called the coach, come to the coach. And so it was a coach session. And so after a particularly difficult time, they'd all come over to my house, the president had a house. And as I said, I would I'll give them a little bit of alcohol to loosen them up. And we would talk like it was in a psychiatric. That's where I got the idea from. If you're a psychiatrist, you go to the office and they have a coach where you're supposed to sit and talk about your problems. And it was enormously therapeutic, but it let the team know that we were a team. This was not Don Hickey's problem or Phyllis Clark's problem or Carl Amrine's problem as provost. It was our problem and we were together and we were going to figure it out. And I think it built a lot of loyalty and camaraderie and goodwill. How often did you talk to your team? Every week. If I was in town. Now, I have to say, as president, you did a lot of traveling. Well, the provost I talked to every day because they are your number two. And, you know, you are in communication with them all the time. But most of the other vice presidents I would see individually once every two weeks or once a month, depending on their portfolio. But uh, we would have a meeting every week as a team. We would talk about the issues. They would have a chance to tell the team what they were doing, what the problems they were encountering. It was a very important to get together. We were very fortunate living in Alberta, the most beautiful scenery in the world. And we would have three retreats a year, one in Banff, one in Jasper, one in Lake Louise. I mean, great way to build a team. And Martha, you selected her. <laughs> you had a team when you took over the president's role. Some stayed, some left. Tell our listeners a little bit about how you navigated that process. I wish I knew the formula. I wish I could say, do this, do that, ask this question, do that. You'll get the right people. 
Some of the people I put together in my team were exceptional and some didn't work out. So I don't have that magic formula. But I tell the story about Indira, who was probably one of the best, if not the best vice presidents I ever had the opportunity to work with. When people ask me, what's your legacy? And I hate that question. I always say, Indira is my legacy. (laughs) I take all the credit for her accomplishments. But it's a great story in that when I was appointed the president of UBC, there was a period of time. I was still at the U of A, University of Alberta, and a scholar from UBC came to give a lecture at U of A. And I went to the lecture. I didn't understand a word of it. He was a renowned scholar. And afterwards, I went up and introduced myself, and he he wasn't impressed. But he said, I do have one piece of advice for you. I said, what's that? He said, well, you keep your eye on Indira Samarasekra. She is amazing. Now, this is a name you won't forget, right? (laughs) So I go to UBC. For three years, I'm there. I never meet her. I know about her because she's winning every award you can think of. And I'm out there promoting the university on behalf of her and saying how wonderful we are because we have people like Indira out there doing wonderful research and please give to the university. So when I get her application across my desk to be vice president of research on any checklist, she would have failed. She wasn't a dean. She hadn't been an associate. She hadn't been an associate anything. <laughs> associate director. She hadn't chaired a committee. She hadn't been a vice president or an associate vice president. She hadn't been the head of a department. Any of the things that you would typically look for, for a vice president, I mean, these are the top four or five people that you are depending on to do the work of the university. But what did I remember? I remembered what this man had told me, and he was held in such high regard and was such a wise person, and was phenomenally recognized around the world as being remarkable. I thought, that's the name he told me to keep my eye out for. I better interview her. I take her to lunch, and the rest is history. I tell this story because it's the power of sponsorship. He was sponsoring her. He was advocating for her. She didn't know. In fact, she did not know this story until we wrote the book. She never knew. She didn't know the person who, I mean, she knew when I told her who it was, she knew of him, of course, but she had no idea. It's the power of individuals supporting for and advocating for the bright stars that you see in your organization. We don't do enough of that in promoting the people who we think can be the next leaders. And that's a message that we make in our book, The Difference Between Mentoring and Sponsoring. And we now are committed to sponsor as many bright people that we find because we think that's really an important way to promote leadership. Thank you for sharing that because I think people often confuse mentoring and sponsoring. Yeah. Well, let me ask you one question. Do you know any men that have mentors? How many men versus women? Women mentor to death. We are into mentoring. Mentoring is when you actually ask someone, Would you advise me? Would you be my mentor? Would you help me understand things? And they give you advice, and you either take or leave it, and you have a relationship with them. Sponsors work in mysterious ways. They often are people you have no idea who they are, but you have made an impression on them. You have said something in a meeting. 
you have sat next to them at a dinner and said something that they thought was pretty impressive. And usually they have watched you. They have been impressed by you. But usually they're people of renown. Yeah. They're people who are well thought of in the community who can influence just by putting their name with yours. And they don't do it frivolously. They will not put their own reputation on the line for someone who they don't thoroughly respect and think is going to do a good job. But you have no idea who's going to sponsor you. You don't go out and say, would you sponsor me, please? I've had people ask that, and it's a dumb question. It is a dumb question. Would you be my sponsor? No. These are people who do it quietly under the radar. And as Endura and I have looked at our book, as we went through our whole stages of you know our career, we recognized that at every step of the way, there was a sponsor in the background promoting us. And in our case, it was always men. And so now as women who have led, we feel we need to sponsor as many women as we can, as well as men. But, you know, we need to step up and do that. Even early on, when someone asked me to get them coffee, and one of my male colleagues said, here, let me go with you. Even something that simple to say, let me advocate. That was visible, and he wasn't a more powerful person, but by virtue of his gender at that point in history, he was sponsoring sponsoring me. Yeah, he was standing up for you and for your rights and for your reputation. Uh Yeah, as a peer, I shouldn't have been asked to get coffee. Exactly. That's what he he was doing. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. that's what he was doing. Yeah, Yeah. and, you know, well, we've all had the privilege of sitting on many committees where people are being, you know, nominated and so forth. Mm -hmm. Invariably, men have done it well for years and years. They nominate Joe. They nominate Peter. They nominate Jane. And they nominate each other. The poor women often have no one nominating them. And yet, they're no less respected. They're no less able. For women to nominate women and men to nominate women. And to your point, we've all gotten where we've gotten with male advocacy. We are not bashing men in any way. We're saying thank you. There's no question in my mind when I look back that I would never have gotten each of my different stages without men who believed in me and who stood up for me and who put me forward and pushed me. I mean, I certainly, as a female in engineering, I had no female colleagues whatsoever. And people have said to me, oh, you must have faced discrimination. People must have, you know. I said, au contraire, the men who were my colleagues, mostly older men, they were at least 10 years older than me, were incredibly generous, gracious, supportive, encouraging. Now, sometimes you can misinterpret their actions, right? They get into an argument with you or a debate at a a faculty meeting. You don't immediately consider that as an act of discrimination. They're just debating. And I think a lot of women misinterpret healthy dynamics as being whatever they want to do. And we talked about the victim mentality. We're done with being a victim. As women, we have every opportunity to succeed. And it doesn't matter whether you're a minority or they have different sexual orientation or whatever it is that's going on. The days of saying that you're being put down because of the system are gone. Individuals may discriminate. I think that's really important. The other thing, I think we've come to a time where we need to not set up these sort of structures. You know, we, we're talking about my favorite subject, diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
which has a lot of validity. But I think we have to be careful that we don't carve ourselves up into these little silos and inadvertently set people back. And one of the stories that I tell in the book that I think is important to tell this audience is I was being interviewed by the newspaper Edmonton Journal. This was in early 2000s when already there were more women in the undergraduate programs at universities than there are men. That's true. And this guy said, are you worried about the fact that men are now being left behind? And I said, absolutely. We can't end up in a place where now men are underemployed. And so I said, I'm going to be an advocate for white men because I can be. You should have seen the outcry. I was asked to resign because the women got all upset and said, how dare you? Women are not in CEO positions. They're not. I said, that's not the issue. The issue is there is a gender imbalance now developing. Young men are being left behind. We need to begin to pay attention to that. My point is that we got to be generous and not become all polarized and not move the tent over to exclude these people yes, versus their exactly. people. Exactly. Yeah. One time I was called by a president and said, we'd like to give you an honorary degree. I said, oh, I'm, I'm thrilled. That's lovely. And he said, yes, we're honoring the fact that you were an outstanding woman president. I said, I'm really not interested in receiving an honorary degree where you're telling me I'm an outstanding woman university president when there are only two of us in the country. I said, if I'm an outstanding university president, then I'm more than happy to accept your honorary degree. But if you're only signaling me out because of my gender, I don't think that's honorific. Let's make it a little generous. He immediately backed. Oh, of course, that's a, oh, you're one of the most amazing presidents, you know, blah, blah, blah. But she was. But I thought I needed to make that clear. Yeah. Yeah. The two of you had a rift at one point. People fall away. We have disagreements. How important it is that we find a path back to repair because your book is a result of that. I'll take this question because I'm the culprit. And I am. It was so selfish of me. Indira was my vice president. And I saw in her all the qualities that you've seen today and you've heard today. She had president written all over. And although we never really, I don't think, formally discussed it, I was constantly trying to give her experiences where she could see what it would be like. And I believe so firmly that she was going to replace me, which, of course, is ludicrous because an outgoing president has absolutely no say and who was going to replace them. And in fact, it would have been a kiss of death because they always look for somebody different. So when she started looking at the U of A to be president, I was not a happy camper. First, it's a competitor. It's an outstanding university that competes with UBC. But second, I felt she was rejecting me. And of course she wasn't. But I saw this as a personal rejection of my goal for her. Of course, she went on and she became just a remarkable president, as I knew she would be. But it took me at least five or six years to get over it, to get over the personal rejection, to get over the fact that she had turned her back on the university I loved. I had worked so hard to try to prepare her. She had gone on and kind of just said, sorry, I'm leaving you and I'm leaving the university. It was so selfish of me because it was right for her and it was clearly right for the country and clearly right for the University of Alberta. So now she's finished. She comes back to Vancouver. And I don't really know 
how we started, started to get, get coffee together. together. I don't remember. I don't remember either. One of us must have reached out. And we started having coffee, oh, every three or four months at the same place. Truffles. Truffles. We began to mend our relationship. But even as we took on the book, which is another whole story, it was the writing of the book that really cemented the relationship. Because as Indira said, we knew each other professionally. We regarded each other professionally. We respected each other professionally. But we didn't really know each other personally. And when you write a book like this, because the first part of the book is developing nerve, it's all about our childhoods and our families and having children and our marriages and all of that. You start disclosing things to each other Mm -hmm. that make you recognize that this is a person you love dearly. Mm -hmm. And our relationship, I mean, we are BFFs. Yes. I mean, seriously. We live just on the road. We yep. live right down the road from each other. We both have four grandchildren who go to the same school. Yes. I mean, it's, it's sick. It's, it's cynical. It's so funny. <laughs> and kids are surgeons. And I mean, honest to goodness, they work together. It's, yes. It's unbelievable hospital. in the same hospital. I feel so much gratitude and, and joy in having discovered her as a kindred spirit. The ability to repair, again, speaks to grace in my view. You know, I wish I knew what had triggered it. I wish I knew what had triggered our coming back together. I'm an alumnus of the University of British Columbia. I have a long history with this institution. I did my PhD there. I was a professor. I became her vice president. So I've been there 28 years. But I married the University of Alberta, right? You know, I am deeply committed to that institution and will, always will be. So we came together. And the thing is, she had been at the U of A. Yes. She had been there 12 years. So I couldn't understand why she had this reaction to my going to an institution in which she had had a great 12-year career. So the misunderstanding was both ways. I was really annoyed with her, you know, because she kept saying, oh, you don't want to go there. You got to stay here. That's not a good place. I'm like, but you were there for 12 years. So, you know, it's about really understanding the motive. And I knew that her heart was in the right place. She cared deeply about me. I knew that she was basically reacting to a very personal desire, having groomed me to see me follow her and build on what she had done. The big conflict for me it was an unconscious conflict. Because, of course, I had to give a reference for her. Yes, she did. And, of course, I gave her a glowing reference. She is a glowing person, and I'm not going to back away from that. But the whole time I was giving this glowing reference, I'm thinking, I'm nailing my coffin. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just securing her to leave. It was difficult. The book, I will always be grateful. Yeah, me too. For the book. Yeah. Many people don't heal. And the courage and the grace and heartfeltness to come back together just speaks to the quality of humans. You talked about listening and hearing and taking a different point of view. And sometimes time is required. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. But respect and trust, you know, because we know other people who we could have approached for the book, and I know it wouldn't have worked. There was something always there. There was always a chemistry, always there. Thank you both for sharing your personal stories and encouraging women and men alike with the importance of nerve, grace, grit, respect, listening, 
the beingness of high quality principled people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.